do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Provenance is absolutely key and time kills food. Plus, soil amendments are the off-ramps from extractive agriculture and why we need to be able to go long on investments. And we talk a lot about carbon, but water is actually everything. And why we don't focus enough on regenerative aquaculture. This and so much more we cover in this interview with the co-founder of Trailhead Capital, Trip. So get a cup of tea. It's over an hour, but I think very enjoyable. And so enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another interview today with the co-founder of Trailhead Capital, Trip Wall. Welcome, Trip. Hi, Kuhn. Really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. To start with a personal question, which I always love to ask, how did you end up building soil, regenerating soil, focusing your professional and probably also your private time? pretty much on regeneration. Yeah, you know, it's been a, a circuitous journey, but I really... Um, what does circuitous mean? I think a wandering, a long wandering one, but I don't know the word. A long wandering journey with lots of tangents. And so I come from a timber and cattle lineage and a host of entrepreneurs. And so I've really always... Well, then it makes a lot of sense what you're doing. It all came back, but it's, like I said, it hopefully it'll be coherent by the end, but... So I've always loved, I've always loved being outside, outdoors, and had a real place in my heart for animals and and just really wanted that to be a, a part of my world. So I've always been involved in clubs and nonprofits that were in and around that. And I, for the last 15 years, have been chairman and president of the Colorado, Colorado Wildlife Foundation. And then I am on the uh, the governor's Western States Water Conservation Partnership. So I have long tried to you know make a difference in flora fauna and the way that they interacted from a philanthropic perspective and really decided that that wasn't catalytic enough and so in my professional life I was at a large asset manager called Alliance Bernstein where I worked on alternative assets uh, private wealth and ESG and I really wanted to be able to bring those financial chops if you will of of investing in and across private and public platforms to bear in what I saw was a really sort of glacial and slow path to regeneration through the nonprofits. I still champion that work and I'm still involved deeply in, uh, in water really as a focus and animals, but I really wanted to, to bring my capital 
capabilities into a space where I thought it needed additional resources. And so that was really the genesis of Trailhead was pulling that together and seeing a piece of the spectrum where entrepreneurs and science were really at the vanguard. And, you know, we wanted to be catalytic and be able to put capital with those innovations, with those ideas and steward them to build this asset class. And so, you know, really that's with my partners, Mark Lewis and Bobby Pels and Pete Oberly, what we've endeavored to do. Do you remember if there was a specific point or when you were bitten by the regeneration bug or because some people can point at a very specific, I don't know, movie they saw or a book they read or or just because they grew up on a farm and they saw what was possible or was it a, a slow process in your case? Was it something, was it a meeting, a coffee with somebody? What was the the trigger when you couldn't let go anymore of, because you could have focused on sustainable ag and food, you could have focused on renewable energy, you could have focused on mobility. I mean, there are a lot of catholic places where you could have spent your time and your knowledge in terms of the financial world, but you decided to focus it on a very specific part of the food sector. So I, I think I'll go back a little bit to my, what was a, a philosophy degree at CU. And I did my graduate work also in axiology and phenomenology. And so I really, you know, like my partners began reading and really being influenced by, you know, the Herman Daly's, the David Montgomery's, the Paul Greenberg's, And then the Rudolf Steiners uh, for me. So as a philosophy major, I really sort of, you know, delved deep into Steinarian philosophy, anthroposophic medicine, certainly biodynamics. And then, you know, the pedagogical format that he put together called Waldorf schools, which all my children went to. And so it really began to be ingratiated in thinking about how, you know, I wanted to really sort of deconstruct the in, the industrial food complex as we knew it. And so actually my straight path there, Kuhn, was that when I left Alliance Bernstein, I bought an independent grocery chain, organic grocery chain, that was one of the first movers in the space in the early 70s. And, and because of the Whole Foods IPO, they had to divest some of their brands. And we bought this brand and, and reopened it. And so I really started there by trying to procure locally, know all of my suppliers. You know, I really was getting out of trying to have an intermediary like a UNFI or a Cisco. I wanted to have a community and a tapestry that was with our local water, with our local producers, with our local ranchers. And so we opened up the back of the store and let anybody who had the provenance and was doing the right things and their organic papers, or if we knew what they were doing, we would go to their farm. And if they were doing biodynamic practices, but not certified, we put it on the shelf. And so that was really my first foray into understanding how we needed to have a supply chain deconstruction and really where the value and the margin expansion of being able to take out those middlemen could be incredibly accretive to two groups. One were the stewards of the land who And I told you from my history, I had seen, you know, take 50 cents out of every dollar to be able to have a living wage to do this work on the land in the 1950s to what is, you know, under 10 cents today and a very hard slogged business of which no second and third generation wants to be a part of. And so, you know, for me, we really want to champion those folks, men and women who stay on the land and steward the land and the right methodologies. And so let's let there be a living wage and premiums on that side, cost reductions and new income streams. 
On the other side, let's let nutrient-dense, fresh, local food be accessible for everybody, right? Not just the affluent or the 1%. And I think for me, the sort of epiphany of regeneration was thinking about that circularity and thinking about how the interconnectivity of our food supply, of our planetary and human health, really all focused right around this medium called soil. And so for me, that became incredibly profound. And we started looking at how can we create vertical farms, regenerative farms that we could then supply the grocery chains so that we could be using our biophotonic principles of sun and soil to create biodiverse local supply chain, you know, that really started to solve for the human maladies and the environmental maladies that we know persist. So that was sort of this part of the circle. Just to unpack that piece a bit, I'm super curious, why did you choose to buy a food chain after you left at that company? Because you could have gone into any other direction. And yes, you care deeply about the water and deeply about the animals, but that not necessarily leads always to buying a food chain out of Whole Foods. Like what was that trigger into that focus on food and ag instead of land, which could have been, you could set up an NGO, you could join an NGO, you could have, I don't know, set up a national park, do a lot of other things to protect water and animals. What led you into that very active role of matching demand and supply through the back end of a, of a supermarket and the front end and the shelves? No, it's a great connecting question because I had a, a baseline of, naturalist, sort of environmentalist. Yeah, or you could have gone into education with Waldorf and, and rolled that out over the US. And I mean, there was a lot of work to do in that intro you mentioned. So I really, what it was, and it, my entry point is very similar to some other people's. I was an athlete. And so I cared deeply. I was a cyclist, still am, and a skier and cared deeply about my performance. And that then coincided with the birth of my children. And those two things were really pretty instrumental in the way I decided to think about the food system and what I was putting in my body. And once I started thinking about that, I couldn't stop thinking about the full provenance and where it came from. And so that path is, you know, is fairly circular. And so that's why I said where I can actually make a difference is in the consumer demand side and by offering products and helping educate the consumer through the food about, you know, what they're doing to the land and what they're doing to the stewards of the land. And, and really for me, it's about the ethics and the axiology of your dollars, your spending and your investment, which we can talk about a little bit later. And so how is that chain? Is it still around? I haven't looked up the, I should have done my homework on this. How has that process been since like, when was the IPO of Whole Foods actually? When did you buy that asset and how long have you been involved in that before or even still when you were setting up Trailhead? Yes. So um, sadly, went the way of the dodo during the COVID crisis. I had left as CEO previously. And so sort of the next management team wound it down. But it was an amazing journey that I was involved with because this was a brand that was actually in Boulder and, and that I grew up eating from. My parents took me in Denver and Boulder in the late 70s and 80s to these stores And it was a very unique experience. And so it was super differentiated from anything else. And, and that's really what I wanted to try to bring back because everything had been so processed, packaged, and just truncated from a diversity standpoint. It's a theme you're going to hear everywhere. But I wanted to give consumers more choice with good stuff and allow them to understand the nutrient density and then the provenance of where this stuff came from. 
And unfortunately, COVID, even with slightly bigger margins and with more space, didn't, even though supermarkets went, I mean, the sales went through the roof, right? I mean, people started lining up, et cetera. What, what triggered then? Simply, they did, just didn't make it. Well, it was a really, it was a couple things. So we were really based in a college town. And so CU is a huge demographic base for us. And obviously, all of the schools went dark. So that was very difficult for us. And then we really didn't have sort of the, the omni-channel strategy that I was trying to build. We just hadn't gotten there yet. So we weren't able to, you know, to deliver and meet people where they were. And we had been running on procuring regenerative and beyond organic products sort of exclusively. And so our margins and our volumes were very different than the Kroger's of the world that, you know, just do large, large numbers. And so it was just, it was a hard place to be. I still hold out that there is a, there is a lot of great retail like Erewhon that is out there making a real difference in differentiating that food supply, because I think the consumers, you know, are starting to demand it with their education. So let's switch gears a bit to Trailhead. What, I mean, we obviously, and I will link it in the description below, interviewed Mark Lewis, your co-founder, or one of your co-founders. How would you describe, for anybody that didn't listen to that interview, how would you describe Trailhead and, and your role specifically? Yeah, so, I mean, Trailhead is a, a venture capital firm that is really trying to break the mold of venture capital by being a B Corp, by impact reporting, both socially and environmentally, and by changing the horizon of patient capital with which we can wrap our entrepreneurs with a continuum that's on their time frame, not an artificial market time frame. So those are three pretty different pillars in, in VC. And so we really started Trailhead to be in a place in the early spectrum where the ideas and the innovations, you know, the institutions and academia are on the forefront of science, of supply chain, of waste reduction, of transparency and traceability. And there's just no institutional capital really from a, a large asset class perspective moving into those regenerative companies. And so we really want to build that path and that architecture to make this an institutionally investable class. And when you talk about that third pillar of time, does it mean you run on a different schedule, like not the 10 plus two or the 10 plus one in terms of VC funds? Because that's often one of the critiques is they have a few years to invest, then they don't do anything for a while. And of course, they add a lot of value to companies. And then they need to divest quite forcefully at some point, usually not at the time that makes sense for the company. Or, I mean, you need a lot of luck to for the, an exit that makes sense for, both for the company and the VC fund, which creates a lot of tension. So have you figured out a way to get around that, that time horizon, which comes back and back again in, in the podcast as being too short or not enough? Although we might have 10 years to fix a lot of these things, which is a counter argument, like let's get going as soon as possible. What has happened there in, in terms in Trailhead Capital? I mean, for sure, you had a lot of discussions on that. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Well, and we, you know, we're very attuned to the natural cycles, you know, which aren't artificially in decade blocks. 
And so I think, you know, what we've built is, yes, our LPs understand that we have extension capabilities to the fund. So it is a, a typical 10-year life cycle to the fund, but we've built in extensions and then the ability to roll into what will be fund two so that we're not forced into making those decisions. The interesting thing I will tell you about this particular time and place, Kuhn, is that we're actually fighting the opposite. We actually have an offer in a portfolio company that we've been invested in for less than a year that's on the table that we're a little bit hesitant to. We're not the majority party, but it's a little quick for us. We really would like to mentor and steward and be more active in bringing value to that ecosystem. And it looks like because of sort of the froth, because of the transaction you know, velocity in the space, all of a sudden we may have to exit. And that's a positive thing for the LPs and as a fiduciary, but we don't just think about financial returns. Yeah, that's an interesting issue and a luxury problem, obviously, to have. And I think we're going to have had exactly the same discussion with a few investors and a few funds over the last weeks. Like, yes, we need to innovate on the time horizon and maybe might be a holding company, might be an evergreen fund, etc. Many investors might not be ready for that. I don't know if, what's your experience there. You might raise a lot less with a lot more trouble. And at the same time, which might be a good battle to have, like spend two, three years on the road teaching everybody about evergreen capital and raising 15 million or 10 million and put that to work or raise significantly more now and spend the next 10 years or next few years investing, which is what we need to kickstart a lot of these companies and then figure out after, okay, what does the second fund look like and how does that continuum will grow? But it's also a bit like planting a lot of trees in an agroforestry system and hoping that somebody will figure out and like a, a harvesting machine along the way as they are growing. So it's a bit of a risky bet, but at the same time, I really understand the approach because you cannot innovate on too many things at the same time for, especially for hesitant investors to get on board. Well, and I think you've heard my partner, Mark, talk about, you know, the way that we would like to innovate in the structure, again, to be founder friendly. I mean, we really want to be able to wrap the entrepreneurial verve and support that all the way through the continuum. And that doesn't just mean, you know, our investable piece at that time, it means supporting them with the ecosystem and all of our network. And so I think we will continue to, you know, we're building a set of thematic funds and, you know, we see this as our life's work going forward, but we will I think, begin to iterate on the format and the structure to your point, as we get to a point where we have the architecture to fill out, I think first we need to get money in the space into the ideas and grow these seeds into A's and B's and C's to where we have an ecosystem. And then we can get creative. Once we have the institutions involved in the space, we can start to think about what those structures look like. And to your point, because playing the advocate, the devil's advocate here, everybody says they're founder friendly. How does that show in this case with you? And specifically, as you mentioned, the space is getting crowdier and hotter in certain places, and you might need to compete with other funds that are not specifically focused on regen, but are starting to get interested, for instance. So how do you make sure you get a, a seat at the table, not only in the round, but then probably one of the things you can bring is not only the money, but that founder friendliness, the ecosystem, et cetera. What is your edge there than more than just money? Because it's getting hotter in this space. and It is getting hotter. Which is great, but also challenging for groups like yourself. Well, and you know, I think we feel actually incredibly collaborative. I mean, coming from the asset management world, there's a lot of sharp elbows. 
And this is really a sort of rising tide lifts all boats. Um, so we love collaborating with all of the sort of luminaries that are out there. And a lowering tide shows that who's been swimming naked, right? That was the, that's the buffet quote. And to your point, I would say, you know, we think we do have some differentiated edge in sort of our deep regenerative knowledge. And, you know, we've been students of this movement for a very long time on the front end, and we've been investing in and and thinking about it. And so we have pretty deep networks. So one of the things that we bring is the ability to bring our network and we can articulate that in terms of customers. So, you know, you've heard about one of our investments called Telesense. It's a, a hardware orb, predictive analytics for perishability, and it reduces waste about 30% in barges and grain silos. It also reduces workers comp because there's an HSE component You don't have humans having to take core samples, which they get hurt frequently. But when we went into that deal, we were able to bring their three top customers now into that equation and, you know, receive a step up in the next round. And so, you know, there's a very articulatable way of how we bring value from our network. Beyond the cash. Yeah. Beyond the cash. I would say also we're all founders. So, you know, Mark Lewis has founded and run. Pete has founded and run. I have founded and run and we've all exited. And so, you know, we've been operators and entrepreneurs as well as investors. And so I think we have a unique lens. I would really implore people to talk to our portfolio CEOs like a Megan Rowe at Whiteleaf to say, this is what Trailhead has been able to do for us because I don't like patting ourselves on the back, but I do think we have an arsenal of tools to really be supportive. And we try to be active in a really positive way. And sometimes We'll have some uh, an entrepreneur tell us, hang on, we're just not there yet, right? As we try to push, push, push for growth of and course. new ideas. And so we try to be really collaborative. And, you know, I have my CEOs that they have my cell phone number. They'll call me on a weekend and I'll take the call and, you know, we'll talk something out. And that's still possible, obviously, as you're relatively small in a good way. I mean, that might change. And, and if you have 50 companies with all your cell phone number, it becomes a bit more tricky. But for the time being, that's a non-scalable thing to do, which makes a lot of sense. So what has happened since we talked with Mark in June? What has happened over the summer? The White Leaf deal you just mentioned, which we, by the way, also in interview just happened, I think at that time was just announced. So how has been the summer and what has kept you busy? We're now talking in, in October, by the way, just for people keeping track. Yeah, It's been a great summer. It's been incredibly frenetic. Again, you know, it's been unique for us in the sense that we've made now seven investments We have about five more we're close to that are in the sort of investment committee track. So I think we'll end the year somewhere around 12 to 15 investments, which is a really good clip. We sort of set out to do a deal, a partner per quarter It was a pace we thought we could you know, maintain with the sort of rigor of our underwriting and due diligence that we want to have as fiduciaries. So we've made some incredible commitments. You know, we're looking in new and exciting areas that really add on to the portfolio construction and the thematic that we've talked about in and around soil and our, our sort of three verticals, which we can talk about a little bit. But, but certainly, you know, beyond organic CPG is continues to be in our wheelhouse. So white leaf is a great example. CPG, just for anybody, what does it stand for? Consumer packaged goods. Forgive me. And so we think of white leaf as a, you know, it's a biodynamic Demeter certified You know, Megan and team just won a Nexty award at Expo East as they've launched some new SKUs and those new SKUs are outside of uh, of just baby food. So it really is a true provisions brand. And 
that's really exciting because it really kicks into a deeper soil thesis, which I'd like to go back to. And it really talks about the heavy metal contaminants, the nanoparticulate plastic matter, obviously all of the agrochemical stuff. You know, it's not in white leaf. It's in every other baby food because we in the U.S. don't test our food for heavy metals. So we'll get back to that. But that's a big theme for us in soil and for education in the consumer packaged goods. So you'll see some beyond organic regenerative CPG in our future. We're excited about that. And do you see there the, the consumer demand being there that often talked about people are starting to choose different things in the supermarket? Ah, we had a discussion with Nestle over that, I think just before the summer, they started to be very interested in the space because they see people switch, or at least they see that in their, they see people checking ingredients, etc. Do you see that as well? Do you see this finally the consumer getting out of that few percent that really go to that organic shop and really read the labels. Like, does it get to that, I don't know, early adopters, maybe like the next phase, like this, this, the group that is slightly bigger, but very fundamental for this movement. Exactly. And, and I, you know, I was on this train so long before COVID and I knew that this was a growing segment. I was passionate about it, but to your point, early adopters, I think COVID really exposed a lot of what was going on in the food system and gave people a chance to educate themselves a little bit more about that supply chain. So I really now think you're seeing the demand not only from subscription, online subscription for food, that category has gone through the roof. I look at then things like what Whole Foods is doing, you know, and I really champion the way that they're thinking about regenerative shelf placement because they're taking real data, turn reports, you know, spends turn reports, and they're making planograms in a regenerative sense and telling their suppliers, and we have a large LP that's a big supplier to Whole Foods, that just showed us their supplier deck or presentation for 2022. And they're making room for up to 30% of their shelf space for regenerative products. Wow. But like certified or it's going to be them checking the outcomes? Like what do they mean by regenerative products? Oh, now this... <laughs> So they would say, justify a regenerative claim Okay, is how they would talk about it. So we can go down the certification path, which I think, you know, with our partnership with Rodale and the deep reverence with what the Institute does, you know, we really like the ROC. That's the regenerative organic certification that Dr. Bronner's and Patagonia and Rodale have put together and where, you know, we found Whiteleaf. So again, one of our you know kind of proprietary deal origination sources is the Rodale Institute. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that that certification is a very high bar, but I will tell you that I end on the path of supporting the Dan Kittredge of the world and trying to say, let's figure out an outcomes-based result. Because as much as I appreciate the methodologies and the certification that get me a Demeter certification, it doesn't necessarily one-to-one -one correlate to what is in this apple that I'm about to eat. Mm -hmm. And so we really would like to know from a phytonutrient active compound, what's actually in that apple. And, you know, Dan and his team, Holly, and there's a whole host of people working towards that transparency on the molecular nutrition side. And I think that's the panacea that we're also excited about. But until then, I think we need to be better than organic, but organic's a great start. And I think the regenerative organic certification is a good way there. So what are the deals? I mean, you mentioned white leaf, which we discussed previously as well. And I will link the interview we did with them below. 
what are these can you talk about obviously if there's something you can talk about that has happened over the summer either specifically or very vaguely something we didn't hear from mark yet that you might be able to point us to what you're excited about i mean you mentioned other regenerative or beyond organic cpg brands so we can imagine there might be other things we can buy in a supermarket okay i imagine you don't want to mention any names but anything else you can mention in terms of deals you have done so far or should we check in in like end of year for that or early next year yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you sort of the categories of which we've done because I think waste mitigation is huge. Okay. And yeah. so we really have that as a theme and we're looking at a few a few things in that vertical. Like waste on the farm, waste between farm and consumer, waste in the kitchen, what waste? Really supply chain waste. So it's really, you know, that most of the waste, and you heard Mark talk about this a little bit in his podcast, is really in that supply chain. And so there are simple technical solutions to reduce that waste that we want to invest in. So that's a big category we're excited about. Organic waste or, I mean, like in the organic, because that's always then the, the question, okay, you're helping food waste be reduced fundamentally in a conventional extractive system, or are you focusing then on the, the organic part of the system or even the regenerative, which is a much smaller part, obviously, of the value chain or anything food waste is a huge issue. Let's invest and let's get it fixed. I think you'll see the way we think about this is all these things is on a spectrum. And so, you know, whether it's black soldier fly and reducing CAFO waste, whether it is supply chain transparency and just reduction of time, which time, time kills food. You know, these, all of these across these two on farm, as Mark would tell you about biomass and all aspects, I would say of waste, you know, we're thinking about how we can move the needle with our capital. So waste is definitely something we're going to hear announcement about and anything else? It is. And I would say two other very exciting categories for me are obviously the biological, let's call them amendments. I think there is a, a host of really exciting things that we're looking at. And we've got two very exciting announcements that are coming up in that particular space. How do you screen them? Because I find obviously you go way deeper than we do for inviting somebody on the podcast. I find it very difficult to to separate the noise from the interesting space and the amendments or inputs because there's there's a lot happening for sure a lot of interesting things I just am not a soil biologist and not a farmer at any large scale except for some plants here and there like how do you understand which ones are which ones are actually helping let's say a transition towards a more regenerative system except not just getting the farmer to replace one input for another one and getting them hooked for that basically forever, which is a more sustainable, better input. I believe all of that, but it doesn't get you off the drug afterwards in terms of any transition. Like how do you, how do you put them on the spectrum of, Ooh, this is super interesting from a regenerative perspective, or oh, this is just helping an extractive system to become just a bit cleaner. Great question. So I mean, we think about it in sort of a, a vector or directional sense. And so, you know, what we would tell you is that in the perfect polyculture, animal integrated, biodiverse plot, the plants really take care of their own immunology. You really don't need all of the synthetic inputs and even the organic or biological inputs that we're talking about. If you have the perfect homeostasis with the water cycle, the carbon cycle, the diversity, the perennialization that we, that we talk about. So that's the aspirational endpoint. But I think to get there, we've got to prime the pump. And so coming from this large extractive chemical-based agricultural system, 
you know, we believe that there are some off ramps and we think of these amendments as off ramps to get to the perfect spot. And that's when you get interested. Yeah. And that's when we get interested. But really to answer your question, I mean, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a chemist. I'm a philosopher and a businessman and an investor. And so, you know, what we did is partner with the most respected minds and the best advisory staff that we could put together that would help us de-risk the tech on a tech side. So, you know, we've got guys like Seth Levine that can help us think through one of the best tech investors in the world, what a, a SaaS roadmap needs to look like for a given technology. We then have, you know, the Rodale Institute with Jeff Moyer and his incredible staff of scientists, which we run all of our, our scientific ideas to ground with. We have Dr. Doug Cameron, who is the ex-Cargill chief scientist who had a, a regen apostasy and who is an incredibly valuable team member. I can't say enough. Tell me more about that. What happened with that? Cargo isn't known to be the most regenerative company in the planet. And wasn't certainly when he was there in the 90s, right? And so he just, as a thinker, as an outdoorsman, you know, he thought there was more and he went to go seek out a more holistic idea of what food and ag can be. And left Cargill. Yeah. And left Cargill and has done a, an amazing amount of things since. Um, and really, we're honored to have him as our one of our scientific leads. And then, and then we have the Mad Ag crew. So, you know, Dr. Phil Taylor is an advisor. So everything we look at, whether it's dandelions for rubber or whether it's some kind of a metabologenomic input that we're going to put in the farm, we run it through, you know, our scientific advisory so that we can feel good about the probability of that science. And so that's the second pillar, let's say, or the second stream of few potential announcements, let's say, by the end of, of this year. And then you mentioned the third. Well, what's the third? That's really the metabologenomics piece. So what is that in plain English? So for me, this is one of the most exciting things within the food and ag system, mainly because we know so little. Um, you know, I was thinking about your podcast with Dan Barber and, and we just know so little about the food. You know, we know 80% of the compounds in the given food are unknown to us, right? And so as we start thinking about aeroponics and hydroponics and cell-based things, you know, I think the answer to all of that is, is it good or is it bad? I don't have an ethical position on any of it. What I think is the outcome is, is it comparable from a nutrient density standpoint for people? And we don't know that, but we're going to know that in the next, you know, five to seven years, you know, with the likes of the bright seeds of the world and all of this investigation, you know, to the molecular level, obviously what the Bio Nutrient Institute and Dan Kittredge are doing. So that next frontier for us is incredibly exciting. And basically, metabogenomics are crop protection derived from signaling molecules in the soil biome. Mm -hmm. And there is a vast amount of work that can be done there. Of molecules. <laughs> of molecules and of compounds of which we just need massive amounts of discovery. And so we really, we're partnered with some academic institutions. And so what would it do? Would that be how to trigger some of these to repel certain pests or weeds? Or what would it do, let's say, for 
a farmer that isn't at that perfect state of a polyculture with integrated animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like I'm a farmer and I want to go off the off ramp, but and this is a potential exit. Exactly. What would that look like for me? Would it be something I spray, something I inject, something I give to the animals that I might have running on my cover crops or something? What would it actionable look like as a farmer for the soil? Great point. So actionably for the farmer, it will be, you know, a cost reduction of the input with the same outcomes of orders of magnitude, 5x cost reductions. And then the application can be seed inoculants. It can be drip irrigated. It can be sprayed, broadly sprayed. So there's a multitude of ways of getting it to the crops and then into the animals, into their water supply or into the on the grasses for the rotational grazing set. So it's very cost effective and using basically the same hardware infrastructure that you're using now. So it's very compatible for the steward. And how is it then fundamentally different from, like, say, the soil amendment space you mentioned before? Why do you put it in a separate category? Is it like because the process is so fundamentally different what it does, how it attacks the problem of I have pests and I have weeds? Or what does it, why does it deserve a separate category for you? Because this is an entirely new scientific endeavor into small molecules, which are very different than their large molecule brethren. And it's a space of which we have very, very little understanding. And so I think, you know, we know a lot about the chemical lens of what the biological input should look like. We know a little bit about the biological lens of what those can look like. And, you know, I think about John Kemp and folks like that who I think are doing such great work on, you know, the biological side, but there's a whole new frontier that these scientists and these institutes are, are learning, you know, can really help with a variety of self-regulation that are all naturally occurring. So it's a really exciting field. And is there a danger there? Because we understand so little about the molecules in general and the molecules in the soil in particular, is there a danger we start playing with fire? Like what's the, 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 or it simply doesn't, maybe the danger is it doesn't work, which is okay. But is there a danger of what's the, the potential for side effects for weird waking up a super weed that was there sleeping and we didn't, we didn't know it was there. And like, what's the, the tricky part here? Yeah. The tricky part is, and you nailed it. I, I think about it in this old Greek adage from my philosophy, koros, ubris, ate. Okay. You have a great victory from that comes incredible hubris to which comes ultimate demise. And so, you know, I think about the power of what we're playing with, and we talk about this a lot. You know, we want to be supporting nature. We want to be listening and supporting the natural processes, not trying to over-engineer, right? We've seen what that hubris has done. You know, if you look at what we created with the fertilizer early on, we had a great victory. But then we believed that we could do better. And we're really students of nature. The biomimicry is where we reside, and that's our sort of true north. And so as we think about any of these things, we have a very nuanced take to really support the natural processes, not to override or over-engineer, because you know, we're thinking in short-term cycles and nature's thinking in you know, millennia. Yeah, I'm very curious about unpacking that further when there are concrete examples to discuss. So let's park that for now. I'm excited about that. Let's switch gears a bit with... You mentioned before we have to prime the pump. Like so that's where we're moving back to the financial side of things. Let's say the pump has been primed. So you are actually in charge of a $1 billion investment fund or 10 billion or like a large, like a significant large amount. 
I'm asking this question because I'm curious about what people would focus on, not because I want to know the exact breakdown of I would put 152.50 into this. I'm curious, what would you focus on if you had basically, I wouldn't say unlimited, but almost unlimited resources in terms of financial to invest, obviously to invest the grand part of things. You can do it with the returns if you want to, but I'm interested as an investor, what would you focus on if you had a considerable investment fund and the pump is being primed? Or maybe there's not another deal flow. could also be like, I would put it in priming the pump further because the money is not the issue, but the deal flow is. So what would be your take on that? And I think I would say to you, you know, first, we believe that we're going to build, you know, a series of funds and hopefully be deploying billions of dollars into this space, you know, across multiple asset classes, infrastructure, ag tech, you know, all the things that we care deeply about, farmland, agroforestry. But I think if you ask me what I would do with a billion dollars, because, you know, it's a huge amount of money, don't get me wrong. But when you think about the investing landscape, and I think about, you know, aquaculture, which I don't think you can leave out of the regenerative equation because the interconnectivity of our planet is such that, you know, it's deeply involved. Oceans and forests are connected. Oceans and forests are connected. That's a hundred trillion dollar opportunity. So when you ask me about a billion dollars, you know, it begins to pale in comparison. So my answer, I guess, first would be, I would do exactly what we're doing, you know, because we came to this thesis and understanding because we have to build the first set of companies you know, to build this asset class. It's still nascent and has, you know, 10 years of growth to get to its sort of complementary asset classes. Do you see it as a, as a separate asset class or, or a lens that you can, like the regeneration lens or something you can put over potentially all asset classes, looking at infrastructure, looking at farmland, looking at even mobility, potentially looking at housing, looking at education, or would it be all bundled into, okay, this is the regenerative asset class. What, what do you see there? I think you articulated it well, Kuhn. I think it's more of, right, it's a well-articulated thesis that moves as an umbrella across all asset classes. Yeah, because now you're applying it to VC, but in X years when this fund is invested, you'll be applying it hopefully to XYZ, and then you'll be applying it to, with obviously different parameters, parameters because it's different than you invest in farmland, but probably different amounts as well. So it's, I, I got triggered because it's a bit the same saying impact investing is an asset class. Now you're applying a lens to all your investments and potentially your philanthropy and also your life. What, how can I maximize, minimize negative impact and maximize, how can I net positive as much as possible? And that's a trigger part because it, when the impact investing space was born, it was an asset class or it was mentioned like these people in the corner, let's keep them there. Let's grow that a bit. And then that's okay. No, it needs to be applied to everything also to education. Well, and for me, it's like ESG and the nomenclature in investing. I mean, you know, to choose ESG feels a little bit contrived. I mean, everything should be looked at through an environmental, social lens, in my opinion. And so. And it is looked at as just very negative in most cases. Like right, everything right. is impact investing. It's just very often very negative. Like the impact is negative if you like it or not. It's just, you cannot really escape that. Like everything is on a regenerative spectrum, probably on the darker side, the degenerative side, but it is on the spectrum. Any farm is. Well, and that's why, Kuhn, we're working with, you know, the Iroquois Valleys of the world, because I think that there's a lot of complementarity with our fund one portfolio, you know, what they, how they think about stewarding the land, but don't really have all of the sort of sub components dialed in. And how are you working with them? How does that look like in practice? 
Well, so we're, we're in talks right now, but we're, you know, really wanting to put vents collars on, as you can imagine, a lot of the Iroquois Valley lands because because of so many reasons, as you well know. Because it makes sense. Yeah. Because it makes sense. And because it, we, we then think there's an income stream associated with that from the carbon markets, which then makes financial sense on top of the environmental sense. Uh, of course, there's your portfolio companies, especially the more ag tech focused ones need a lot of lead a lot of farmers to to work with and if you are working with a lot of farmers that are on a that have taken the off-ramp already and are on an interesting transition it becomes it becomes very interesting yeah. well i think about you know how good which obviously we're huge proponents of how good and and how good is able to use those data points new acreage or hectares with rotational grazing you know to put into their lattice matrix so they can understand a larger idea of regenerative sourcing to all of their database and clients. So it makes a lot of sense to start a farmland fund at some point. And they're very curious how you would structure that. But to, so with the 1 billion, you would do pretty much the same as you've been doing, but let's take that away and give you one wish, like one with, you have a magic wand and you can change one thing in the food and ag sector. What would that be? Could be anything from transparency to soil probes everywhere to data being accessible to all farm land being managed in the commons, like anything you can imagine. What would that one wish be? Sort of. So three things immediately popped to my mind. One is it's not just about carbon; it's about water. Okay, coming back to what we started. Yeah, water, water, water. Water is the key fundament for all of this. Without it, none of it happens. And so, you know, I, we focus on carbon a lot, our water resources through the acid rain, through the pH increase in our streams, through what we're doing to the oceans. It's critical, but it's kind of, you know, off in a corner. So I want to like wake up okay. the world about that. I think, you know, I don't know if you've read the Dan or Paul Greenberg book, um, The Omega Principle. I think it's a great one no, to think about that. And then part, Patagonia has a, a a documentary out, Artificial, which is a good, good one to watch also. I think my second one, and we talked about it a little bit, is provenance, is the transparency in our food system. And that's understanding, unfortunately, the plastic particulate matter, the heavy metals. It's everything. And it's then the, the good stuff, the active compounds, the phytonutrients, the minerals, the good stuff. We just know so little. And so I'm really excited about the epiphanies that are happening in the food space, which I think are really going to validate premium pricing, a variety of things that really make this flywheel work. And then the third, and then I'm going to make you choose because I said one. And then the third is, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, is the long duration patient thinking. So it's the myth of liquidity. What is the myth of liquidity? There's sort of a, a historical precedent in financial management that is what I would say is over conservative to the liquidity side of the scale. I always want to get out, be able to get out. Yeah. Being able to get out quickly or have it available at any time, which is really a disservice to the investor over a long duration because patient capital, you know, if you ask Jeremy Grantham, patient capital and venture capital is the greatest returning asset class of all times. And so, you know, I really think people can do better by thinking about really what their real liquidity needs are, it's a real analytic process to get there. But then being able to go long with the rest of those assets, that's a big piece of it. The other side of that coin is every investment you make and every dollar you spend, there's an ethic attached to that. 
How conscientious are we every time we're spending the dollar, whether it's on the food, at a restaurant, on a piece of clothing? How much do you think about the entire supply line, right? The dignity of the wages of the people in the supply line, the diversity and inclusion that we don't think about this sort of conscious capitalism as much as we should. And I think it's really important for people to understand where they put their dollars. And now you have to choose one thing. What would be the key? I have, I'm thinking it's going to be water, but tell me, what would you choose? I think it's, you know, I said it's the alpha and the omega, but I, I really think for me, for what we're doing in regenerative, for the expeditious need to get the soils, to get the methodologies on a grand scale, I think solving the nutrient transparency and understanding the differentiation in our food supply is imperative. Okay. So you go for understand. And this is a question that definitely inspired by John Kemp. What do you believe to be true? We heard a few things, but where are you contrarian? Like, what do you believe to be true about the Regen Ag space or Regen Ag and food space, or even the regeneration space, if you want to make it a bit wider that others don't? Like, where do you, when you were having a drink after the, the Oakland conference a few weeks ago and you were discussing something and suddenly somebody said, but you really believe like that? Where are you contrarian in, in your beliefs within this movement that often very thinks very similar, or at least it seems to be on the outset, which is a bit disturbing sometimes? Well, I'm going to go back to the water thing because everybody thinks terrestrially in regards to regenerative food and ag, right? And so all when I hear and what I understand is going on is a real proxy for what we've done on the land, right? So, it, you know, we talk about proteins a lot and think about them a lot and invest in them a lot. And we can have another conversation about that at some point. But it's very important that along that spectrum, we consider fish, which is the most efficient protein in the entire channel. And as we think about aspirationally, Kuhn, what, how do you acquire your beef if you're a meat eater? You know, we would say, ideally, you're bow hunting your own pronghorn. Okay, but, but that's sort of anachronistic and it's not really realistic anymore. And okay, so then downline, you know, what's better? And we end all the way over here at the worst sort of animal husbandry CAFO operations. And there's a lot in between. The same exact thing is happening now to our oceans. You know, my kids' kids aren't going to be able to go line catch wild salmon in Bristol Bay. It's not going to be available anymore. So we're moving all of our aquaculture to land and we're creating fish CAFOs, you know, FAFOs. It's the exact same thing that we did on the land. And so, you know, I think what people aren't thinking about or where I'm a little bit contrarian is we have to focus on this too. And I think there's a time right now where there's tons of capital being spilt on, spent on aquaculture facilities, which are again, monoculture, overstocked facilities where sometimes they're even creating genetics so that you have, you know, a color, a size, just like we did in chicken and beef. So I really think there's an interesting time right now for the regenerative community to focus on how can we move the needle away from sort of those CAFOs for fishing and think about rewilding and hybridizing the estuaries where we have the ability to both assist nature, but not over-engineer, mm -hmm. and then rebuild what, you know, she had originally made as our fisheries of the world. I think that's my position. Yeah, we're small teaser. It's nothing is finalized yet, but we're thinking about a series on regen aquaculture as it's been 
I think we talked about it two or three times and that's it, which is a shame for 70% of the earth surface actually should be called water surface. And I have a history in, in sustainable aquaculture and I'm very passionate to come back to the immense opportunities there and not the complete lack, but big lack of the regen space to look at it, but also the rest of the food and egg space. It's sort of this forgotten gigantic corner, which is most of the room actually, but we're sort of not looking at it because we're so focused inwards on the land piece at the moment, which don't get me wrong, needs a lot of work. Needs a lot of work. But just Kuna, a final point, just like we you know, grow all this corn and we zap all these resources of our terrestrial, you know, for ethanol, for high fructose corn syrup and for animal food, you know, we're basically mining the oceans for the same thing. We're mining all of the oceans for fish meal. Fish meal, fish oil. And then, yeah, it's, and the potential there is enormous because of size, but it's also enormous because of the regeneration capacity. If you look at some fisheries that were closed off or even hopefully with some transition finance for the fishermen and women, but firstly, mostly men, the rebound of these systems has been very well documented and is astonishing compared to land masses. I mean, you have to go to the tropics to see that kind of growth that fast and that kind of life coming back if you just let it and assist it and manage that transition. So there's a space there that is, is pretty untapped and we're looking forward to getting deeper into that. So thank you for that nod nudge in that direction and to ask a final question what would you without advising but would you investors that are listening to this it might be a room full of investors smart impact investors obviously all looking for the, the deepest net positive would you push them toward or nudge them towards aquaculture would you nudge them towards other forgotten or not sometimes overlooked sectors what would you tell them if they want to get active uh, should they buy a farm? Should they get their hands dirty? Should they buy a supermarket like you did? What's the best off-ramp from the extractive investment world into the regenerative one? Look, I think anybody who will be a land steward and take it upon themselves to you know, rehabilitate or sustain a piece of land in the right way, I think that personally and societally is a great thing. I would like less corporate ownership of the land and more individualized, democratized land holdings. I think that benefits. I'm already curious how you're going to set up a farmland fund, but that's, yeah. that's, that we keep that for our next one. Yeah. So yes, but I would say then from an investing standpoint, I really think, and we talk to a lot of institutions like this, I think indexing across region venture with a fund like Trailhead, there's others out there that I respect deeply. I think that's the way that you get exposure to a broad base of these assets and you de-risk them by you know that diversity, quantity, and portfolio construction. I think if you're a direct investor, I would say you know make sure that you're taking all of your philanthropic dollars. Maybe it's your Roth, maybe it's your IRA, maybe it's your DAF. You know, and making sure those are directed, which are all very much U.S. terms, just for the rest of the world. Yeah, U.S. financial terms. Yes. If you don't know what they mean, you're probably not in the U.S. That's but, it. but make sure it goes back to my conscious spending and investment. Think about it. The biggest thing I would, I would implore investors to do is be more conscious about the power of their investment and where they're putting those dollars. It really is the catalyst for change. And I always say final question and then it never happens. To round off this conversation in terms of Trailhead, you're hoping to finalize a number of investments over the next weeks. In terms of fundraising, what can you share there? We're now talking the middle of October. Obviously, this is going on full speed at the moment. What's your target and when, more or less, in terms of closing the fund 
and investing that amount or will it be a slightly longer ongoing process? What's the current on that? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I think we'll have, you know, 12 to 15 investments by the end of the year. Final close for the fund will be at year end. And we're really excited about the LPs that have been supporting us, you know, who have also really said that they're going to be in our next fund. And so, you know, we think we've got our fund one set that will then be sort of our fund two anchors. And, you know, we're just really grateful for the support of our LP base and their open-minded mission thinking. And so we are closing in on our final close for the fund. And so, you know, would welcome conversations of interested parties, but look forward to really moving on. Which will be around what kind of number? So about 50 million, sorry. 50, five, zero. Five, zero is the closing target for the end. And we're really probably irrespective of hitting that exact number, going to close the fund at, at year end so we can continue to deploy another 12 to 15 in 2022, Okay, mm-hmm. which will be the majority of the portfolio. Okay, super. And looking forward to check in on that and see how it goes. And good luck because it can be extremely stressful months. I've seen from the inside and I can imagine at this period, both on the fundraising and the investing side to get this over the line by year end, which is always a crazy period. So I, I wish you a lot of luck with that. Well, thank you, Kuhn. It's really a pleasure to wake up every day with my partners and do this to feel like we're doing the right work and just excited to be you know, with thought leaders like you in this space. It's a great time to be in this space. Thank you so much for that. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.